Christ is risen. Let's thank Michael and Lisa and the musicians for today. It was beautiful. Thank you. You may be seated. This is not the thing to admit on any Sunday, certainly not on Easter Sunday, but I'm embittered this morning. My, my father called me a few months ago and asked me what I was going to be doing on Easter. I said, well, at the time, well, I'll be home here in Cleveland, Tennessee, center, cultural center of the world. And he said, well, your mom and I are going to be at St. Peter's in Rome on Easter, and we're, we're calling to let you know we're not taking you with us, right? <laughs> so that wound was still fresh. About a, about a week ago, I get a call from Bishop Ed, asked me what I'm doing on Easter. I said, well, I'll be home with the kids here, this cultural center. Cleveland, Tennessee. And he said, well, could you, could you perhaps go to Tulsa? I'm supposed to speak at Sanctuary, but Bishop Quentin and I have just been invited to go see Pope Francis in Rome <laughs> right after Easter. So there is a conspiracy against me. But I must say, at least I'm not in Cleveland, Tennessee. I get to be in Tulsa. And where, right, where would you want to be if not with Pope Francis in Rome, Sanctuary in Tulsa? All, all joking, or at least most joking aside, you, you should pray for Bishop Q and Bishop Ed, just the two of them meeting with, with Francis this week on Tuesday, to begin conversations about, I mean, it's almost 500 years since the Reformation, and Pope Francis has initiated these conversations about ways in which we can begin to heal some of the rifts between Catholics and Protestants, and our own Bishop Ed is a part of that conversation. So pray that God will be with them and guide them, that the Spirit will rest on them and help them to see what needs to be seen, to say what needs to be said and hear what needs to be heard. Amen? Let's read a couple texts and we'll, we'll jump right in. First from the psalm for the day, Psalm 118, verse 24. On this day the Lord has acted. We will rejoice and be glad in it. We've all heard this verse most of our lives as this is the day the Lord has made. But you can translate it, and on today, I prefer this translation. This is the day on which the Lord has acted. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And then the epistle for the day, Colossians 3, Colossians 3, 1 to 4. So if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for the joy that we all share in this time and space you've opened up for us to be with you and to be with one another. Give us ears to hear what you're saying to us. Fill us with the joy that will carry us out into your mission. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. If you're anything like I am, and for your sake I'm hoping you're not, but if you are anything like I am, Easter and Christmas can, can be kind of bittersweet times because it brings out the corniest, cheesiest aspects of Christianity. Just this morning I saw a status that said, today is not about the bunnies, 
it's about the lamb. <laughs> and I nearly lost my faith. <laughs> Thankfully, Brent and Janice were around to course correct for me. If you, if you ever start to feel kind of sick at how saccharine you find yourself or other people talking about our faith, just read what the New Testament says about Jesus. Just read the Gospels, read the Epistles, and pay attention to what's being claimed about Jesus. Because it will cure you quickly of anything like sentimentality, of anything like cheesy, saccharine sweetness. Notice the text in the Epistle today. It says that Christ has been raised, and you've been raised with him, and that you are dead with him. Now, whatever that means, and it's not clear what it means, it certainly isn't anything you can put on a Hallmark card. It certainly isn't anything that you can associate with bunnies or flowers. You are dead with Christ, and you are alive with Christ. And he is your life, not He's another person in your life, not even the most important person in your life. He is your life, and your life is hidden from you and from everyone else in him. And only when he appears at the end of all things will you see him and even see yourself as you are. We have to have some way of pressing past the familiarity with Easter, past the familiarity with worship as we've known it on Easter, and recognize we're saying something about resurrection that this something has happened to someone and it has all kinds of implications not just for us but for all creation that Christ is risen in a few moments when we come to the table we will confess the mystery of our faith Christ has died Christ is risen and that statement that claim that Christ is risen that's the mystery at the heart of our faith but we can't say it in some kind of cliched saccharine way we have to come to terms with What exactly we're claiming? What does it mean that Christ is risen? Why is that good news? So quickly, let me say a few words about that. First, notice it's Christ who is risen. It wouldn't be good news to confess that Hitler has risen, or Stalin has risen, or Custer has risen. There's, There's only good news because of who is alive. The character of this one. He is alive. And he's not just, again, one of us, but he is God having taken on our humanity. He doesn't just become a human being, one among many. He takes on humanity itself. In the ancient church, there was an axiom, a kind of claim that was basic to all of their teaching and all of their worship. And it was this, what is not assumed is not healed. What is not assumed is not healed. Christ has to take on everything that belongs to us in order to heal all that is wrong with us. And that's what we're claiming when we say that God becomes a human being, that God becomes human. He not only becomes a particular person, he comes and takes on our humanity itself so that everything that is ours becomes his and everything that is his becomes ours. So that there is nothing, as Paul will say it in Romans, there is nothing that God means for God. There is nothing that the Father means for the Son that he doesn't mean for you and for me. We are joint heirs with him. And there is nothing that goes wrong with us. There's nothing that sin and evil and injustice and death have done to us. There's nothing that goes wrong with us that isn't done to him. He takes everything that is ours and then gives us everything that is his. That's what we're claiming about this one 
who has died and is resurrected. That in his death we die, and in his life we're made alive. We're dead with him, and we're alive with him. And whatever has already happened to him will happen to you and to me and to everyone and to everything in the end. That's our hope. But to say that Christ is alive is to say that he was dead. And it doesn't mean anything to talk about resurrection if we don't know what we mean by death. What does it mean that Christ, God in the flesh, was dead? One of the Trinity, the ancient church would say, one of the Trinity suffered and died for us. That's a mystery. How is it that God enters into death and why? Why does there have to be death? There are lots of ways of talking about that, but I, this I find particularly helpful. He comes and takes on death because that's the furthest reach of creation at its depth. The writer of Ephesians puts it like this, that the one who ascended first descended to the lowest parts of the earth. And the image that the writer of Ephesians wants us to see is that Christ, in taking on humanity, in coming and taking on creatureliness, claims everything from the highest heights to the deepest depth, including death. None of us actually experience death. We can experience dying. But once we're dead, there's no one there to experience our being dead except other people who aren't yet dead. Christ experienced death in a way we cannot. And he does that Precisely so that the furthest reach of our experience, even beyond what we can reach, is claimed by him. Think of it like this. The worst, most wicked person you can imagine. As long as they are alive, they are alive because the image of God is at work in them. No matter how horrific their sins, no matter how deeply they've betrayed their, their family, their friends, themselves, no matter what crimes or evils that they've committed, that they are breathing means that they are somehow still imprinted with the image of the God who breathed life into them. What about when they're dead? When they no longer are breathing? When their life is lost? Well, Christ is the image of God. And the image of God on Holy Saturday was dead. Precisely so that even when we are dead, the image of God remains marked on us. Because there is nothing, there is nowhere, there is no one that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. All things have been claimed as his. This is why the psalmist will say, if I take the wings of the morning and flee from you and go to the uttermost parts of the earth, even in hell, you are there. Because from the heights to the depths, he's claimed it all as his. That he was dead means that there's nothing that can happen to you, including your death, that can separate you from the love of God. And he's alive. That one who was dead is now alive and alive forevermore. Jesus did not come back to life. If you hear someone say that today, give them a loving, Jesus-filled slap. Because he didn't come back to life. That's resuscitation. To live and then to die and to come back to life is to come back to life and then to begin to die toward death again. Lazarus is brought back to life, but Lazarus, as soon as he comes out of the tomb, still wrapped in those linen cloths, is already dying again. And he dies again. 
Only Jesus resurrects. Jesus comes out of life into death and out the other side of death into new creation as the new creation for us. Jesus is resurrected. That's our hope. Not to come back to life. The resurrection is not just my life started up again. It's my life translated into the fullness of God. It's my life made one with God in Jesus Christ. Resurrection is not just that I will live forever. I don't want to live forever as the person that I am. And everyone said, amen. Resurrection is to have my life transposed into the key of God's own beauty. Resurrection is to have the Holy Spirit as the spirit that animates my life. Resurrection is to be one with him. To be fully in him and him fully in me. For God to be all in all. Resurrection is not interminable living. It's abundant life. It's not living endlessly. It's living fully as God lives. That's the hope of Easter. And so Easter is a time of joy. St. Romanus, who was a 6th century hymnist in the Orthodox tradition. He was, I like to say, the Michael Gunger of the 500s wrote these gorgeous hymns. And characteristically, he would end each stanza of the hymn with a refrain, with the same refrain, over and over again. One that he had written for Mary ends with her praying each time, my son and my God. Her, her praying to her son as he's dying on the cross. And the, and the hymn, each stanza ends, my son and my God. But perhaps my favorite Easter hymn that he wrote ends with one of my favorite refrains. Let me read just the last three stanzas of that hymn. Granting victory to the humble, bearing like a trophy the cross on his shoulders, he went out to be crucified and to crucify the one who had wounded us. Paying in full what we owe, he hurried towards death. He submitted to blows the glorious form that the cherubim cannot bear to look upon, for they veil their sight at his body. Spitting on shame, Christ willingly clothed himself in a cloak of accusation so that Adam may dance. Vinegar they gave as drink to the source of sweet waters, and gall they gave to the one who made the manna. They struck on the head with the reed, the one who signed the banishment of our enemy. Stretched naked upon a cross, he stripped the adversaries of life and made them a laughingstock to the dead and to the living. He was taken down from the tree, wrapped in a shroud, laid in a tomb, so that Adam may dance. Praise him, creature born of earth, him the one who suffered and died for you. And when you see him living in a little while, receive him into your life. For Christ will rise from the tombs and renew you, mortal one. Therefore make ready your heart for him, so that dwelling there he may make it heaven. A little while and he will come and fill with joy those who are afflicted so that Adam may dance. That's what Easter is. It's God acting so that we can dance. Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Easter are not God appeasing God, but God bringing the life of God to us. Jesus doesn't die on the cross to satisfy the Father's wrath. He dies upon the cross to bring the Father's joy to us, so that Adam may dance. So that we might live a fully human life that was purpose for us from the beginning. But it's absolutely crucial that we not dance and forget 
that the world remains unreconciled to this God who's claimed us. That Jesus is alive means, among other things, that he can surprise us. This is how you know whether someone is living or not. Do they do things that you didn't see coming? Because that means they're alive. If they're doing the same things over and over and over again, they're never surprising you. They're probably not alive. You should have that checked. Jesus surprises us. I know sometimes the way we sing and preach and worship and live, you would think we didn't know that, but Jesus is still living, and he might do something you don't expect. He might actually forgive that person. He might actually heal them. He might actually call them to himself. You don't know what he might do. He might even work in your life or mine. Again, you don't know what he might do. He's living. He has a mind of his own. And that's what the gospel story is about. This week's gospel reading is the story of Mary Magdalene coming to the tomb. She's the first one there in John's gospel. The first one to the tomb. It's still dark on Easter morning. And if I had time, I would talk about how often, even when Easter has broken, it remains dark in our experience. She comes to that tomb, and this writer of this story is purposely recalling the story of Eden. You remember the story of Eden? There is a garden. God is walking with them in the cool of the morning. There's a temptation. They're driven out of the garden because of their temptation. The angels are barring the way. And this story of Mary Magdalene is that story retold, recapitulated. She comes early in the morning and finds the tomb is empty. And she's terrified because no one knew to expect resurrection. And she runs to find Peter and John. They come back to the tomb. They see it empty. And in some bizarre fashion, they're satisfied to know that it's empty. And the text says, and they went home. And she remained. She stayed outside of his tomb, weeping, just as he had stood outside Lazarus' tomb and wept earlier in in the gospel. And suddenly, the gardener appears to her. And she doesn't recognize Jesus because she's looking for the Jesus she knew, not Jesus as he is. And all of us, all the time, are looking for the Jesus we have known, not the Jesus who is living and present now. And our temptation is her temptation to exchange Jesus as he is for Jesus as he was yesterday when we knew him. Yesterday as we've experienced him. Yesterday as we're comfortable speaking about him. And then he speaks her name, Mary, and her eyes are opened. And she falls at his feet and clutches him. And then he says to her, Mary, do not cling to me. Release me, for I must ascend to my God and your God. Go to your brothers and tell them that I am risen. Now notice, this is a retelling of the the Genesis story, of the Eden story. But in the Eden story, Eve reaches for what's not not hers. And because she claims what's not hers, she's driven out from the garden. She reaches for the knowledge of good and evil she's been forbidden to take. And then because she's taken it, she's driven out of the garden. But here, Mary reaches for what is hers. This is her Lord. This is her God. But she wants to stay in the garden. And this is the temptation for all of us who are filled with Easter joy. Not to claim the knowledge of good and evil, but to claim the knowledge of this Jesus we've known. And to stay in the garden. Secure in our experience of God, secure in our experience of the peace that he brings and the joy that he brings, and forgetting about the fact that the world is not all a garden, and that we know a secret that not everyone knows yet, 
Not everyone has seen that Christ is risen. Not everyone understands that God is good. And it is our temptation to stay in the garden. And what he says to us is not, stay here with me, hide with me in the garden. But don't cling to me. Don't cling to me. And we have to find a way to dance out of the garden, into the streets where the poor and the broken and the sick and the angry and the estranged and the confused and the doubting and the embittered are waiting to hear that Christ is risen. I end with these examples of what that might mean. Years ago, when there were totalitarian totalitarian regimes in South America who were disappearing Christians under Pinochet and other, other rulers, Christians in South America developed a liturgical habit of every week at the Eucharist, every week when they gathered for worship, reading the names of all the people who had been assassinated, kidnapped, or disappeared. And then someone in the audience, each time someone was named who had been killed, someone in the audience would say, Presente. Because for Christians, you can't take us out of the presence of God. Because he's the God of the living and not God of the dead. If we lay down our life, we lay it down in him. We live to the Lord and we die to the Lord. And so in an act of defiance to evil and confidence in God, every week they would say, list the people who've been killed. And our response is, they're here. We are gathered with all the hosts of archangels and angels and the saints who've gone on. They are here. What can you do to people who dance like that? That when you kill them, they dance into a a celebration of presence. What can you do when they turn the other cheek, when they dance and go the extra mile in that dance? That's the kind of Easter joy we need. That's the kind of dance we should be dancing. That no matter what anybody does to abuse us, we dance into blessing them. No matter what they do to curse us, we dance into bringing blessing on their life. We turn the other cheek, we go the extra mile. Or another example, last week, the Coptic churches that were bombed, which I'm sure you saw on the news, the very next day, the very next day, Monday, not even a week ago, the bishop gets up in those spaces, in the space of the church that had been bombed, one of the churches that had been bombed, and he gave a message that began like this, thank you, we love you, speaking directly to the people who bombed the church. And then he said, he has a wonderful sense of humor. You can watch it if you, if you find it online. He says, I'm a priest holding a microphone. I can't lie. That's a good place to, if you're cynical, you can laugh there. He says, no, thank you. Thank you. Because by taking our lives, by putting us at risk in this way, you remind us that we do share life with this one who was killed. What you're doing to us is exactly what they did to our Jesus. Thank you for letting us share in that. And we love you. And then, right at the heart of the message, he said these words. We have no enemies. We have no enemies. No matter what you do to us, our response is love. Because while we were enemies, Christ died for us. That's how you dance. That's how you dance. We have no enemies. About 10 years ago, maybe 11, I had the the opportunity to hear Desmond Tutu give a talk. And it wasn't really a talk. He basically got up and for 30 or 40 minutes, he kind of rambled. And 
giggled a lot. If, you know, if you've ever heard Desmond Tutu, he has a really sweet, high-pitched giggle, and he was delighted. He couldn't have been happier, apparently, about where he was and what he was doing. It was Oklahoma City, and even Desmond Tutu, you would think, would find that difficult, but he didn't. He giggled his way through it. And in, in the midst of all that, he told this story that I, that I will never forget. He told it so vividly that I, it was almost as if I had been there. He talked about how when he was a younger man, he was preaching on a Sunday morning in South Africa, right in the heart of apartheid, and tensions were unusually high. And that particular morning, he was critiquing the regime in his sermon. He was being political. And he could feel, he said, the tensions rising in the room. And there were armed guards standing around the sanctuary behind the people who were seated listening. And he said he could sense the ways in which at any moment this powder keg was going to explode. And he said, and suddenly, for some reason, I started singing and dancing. And then one by one, everyone in the audience started singing and dancing with me. And he said, the whole atmosphere changed. And we went from this tense, explosive moment to ecstatic joy. So that even the guards are swaying to the music as they dance their way out of this sanctuary and into the streets. Now, I'm not Desmond Tutu, and I'm not going to sing or dance. And I'm not going to ask you to sing or dance, but I, I am going to say, that's Easter joy. That in the moment when tensions are high, when all of those who think they're our enemies are against us, our best response is not to hunker down, it's not to buck up, it's not to steal ourselves for the fight. Our best response is to giggle and sing and dance because Christ is risen and nothing can separate us from him. Bow your heads and let's pray. Father, pour out your spirit of joy upon us. Intoxicate us with Easter joy so that no matter what is happening around us, no matter how high the tensions are, no matter how embittered our enemies are toward us, God, intoxicate us with joy so that we sing and dance because we know that you are risen. Death is defeated and nothing can separate us from you. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., or 11.30 a.m. If you would like more information about who we are and what we're about, or to partner financially with what God is doing through Sanctuary, you can go to our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com. You can also download our mobile app from the App Store and Google Play. We hope you'll join us next week. Grace and peace.